Hello, and welcome to The Crypto Brief, a podcast from the Fidelity Center for Applied Technology. Every week, we get together to discuss current events and trends in blockchain technology, tokenization, DeFi, NFTs, mining, and related aspects of the crypto ecosystem. I'm your co-host, Ryan Stubbe, Director of Bitcoin Mining, and I'm joined by Jason Ward, Head of the Blockchain Incubator, Parth Gargava, Product Architect within Fidelity Labs, and Jack Newrider, Research Analyst with Fidelity Digital Assets. Before we begin, just a friendly reminder that this discussion is for educational purposes only and should not be viewed as investment advice or a recommendation for any security or asset. The views expressed are those of the co-hosts and not necessarily those of Fidelity Investments or its affiliates. As we all know, digital assets are speculative and highly volatile and are only for those investors with a high risk tolerance. So let's dive into what's been happening recently. All right. So morning, everyone. I think uh, let's just jump right in. I know we have quite a bit to cover uh, news wise this week. Um, We're going to start by talking uh, a bit about the news story related to NASDAQ. Uh, We're going to spend some time talking about the amicus briefs filed on behalf of Custodia Bank by some Republican lawmakers. Of course, the winter mute hack being on top of mind for a lot of people. And then we're going to round it out by talking a bit about Boba launching as an L2 bridge. But before we jump into the news, Parth, do you have something you'd like to share about what you tried last week? Yeah, absolutely. So um, so I, I love this last week section, but pretty much last week I, I tried using this uh, thing called the sound protocol, which was really fun to use. So, um, so I know music NFTs haven't received as much traction as they should. Artists upload songs and kind of beta test their music before launching on Spotify or other big, big platforms. So if you listen to music, you may have heard of SoundCloud. And so imagine SoundCloud, but now you can also support your favorite low-key artist by unlocking a song and paying a small tip. So that's what I used. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think it feels kind of similar to what we've seen with maybe some of the larger social media platforms, some of the work that they're doing around kind of creating community around NFTs and really helping, I think, bring the the value, right, um, that's realized from sharing artists' music or, or pictures, you know, whatever it really is, back to the artist, kind of having that direct relationship between the artist and their fans and followers. Ryan, maybe if I can build off that theme of community for a minute. I know each of us has been pretty active in the past couple of weeks, and it seems like the blockchain and, and crypto communities are back in action. It's it's conference season, post a hiatus. With Fidelity, we hosted some activities during Boston Blockchain Week last week, and you can check out some videos around innovation around Bitcoin mining on YouTube that should be out soon. But Parth, you were down in New York City for the Mainnet conference. Good experience? Yeah. Um, so Misari Mainnet was one of the good conferences this year. Um, so it wasn't uber commercialized, uh, typically that you see like Consensus or Bitcoin Miami, but it had great talks um, and a breadth of topics covered. I mostly sat on the talks uh, which covered innovation in the DAO space and interoperability of chains. Great. Very exciting. Uh, we're actually starting up Boston FinTech Week. So the festivities will continue. Lots of great talks places to go learn, meet people. So looking forward to it. Yeah. And it's really nice, I think, to be back in person after largely these events have been held virtually. Of course, consensus this past year was in person, um, as was Bitcoin 2022. But I think we're starting to see some of the smaller community-based events back in person to local bit devs being held in person again, which is, of course, really important for the community at large. 
Um, so, re- you know, related to the NASDAQ story, there were reports that had come out basically stating that NASDAQ was seeking regulatory guidance and approval to launch uh, digital asset custody function within NASDAQ. Um, of course, this is consistent with what I think we've seen over the past several months and e- even year uh, related to Wall Street and TradFi incumbents starting to really put quite a significant amount of capital behind digital assets and crypto more broadly as they position themselves to to become service providers in the space. And I think with each of these announcements, I think reinforces that crypto and digital assets are, are here to stay for the foreseeable future and that it's really largely a rec- recognition of these firms that if they don't have the capabilities to be able to service these assets, they may get left behind, or at best, they'll be at a strategic disadvantage. Jason, do you have anything to add on this one? I, I just think it's interesting. You know, we, we're talking about a, an entity that's very big in the equities markets, um, making a, a move over to support the emerging crypto markets. So I think we're just going to continue to watch and, and see how things play out. In, in many respects, my view is that we're going to continue to see uh, some type of integration over time where we won't necessarily distinguish between crypto and traditional markets. They may just be considered markets at some point in the future. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's the ultimate goal, right? Um, all right. So let's move on. Um, Jason, so we saw we saw you know some action taken um, from some Republican lawmakers last week uh, related to Custodia Bank's suit against the Fed. What What's happening there? It's pretty interesting. If you haven't been following along, we have a special purpose depository institution registered in Wyoming called Custodia Bank. They've applied for and are waiting approval or response in some indication from the Federal Reserve Board of Governors and the Kansas City Fed on their application for a master account. And what that really means is access to the Fed window. Last week, we saw that seven Republican lawmakers, three of whom sit on the Senate Banking Committee and four who serve on the House Financial Services Committee, signed off and submitted an amicus brief to the court that is hearing this case. And just to be very clear, an amicus brief is a filing by entities that are not a party to the particular case at hand. And this amicus brief specifically was intending to address the Federal Reserve's filing for petition to dismiss the case. And these lawmakers were supporting the case argument that it shouldn't be dismissed. During their filing, they referenced the 1980 Monetary Control Act, supporting the position that requires the Fed to issue a master account to all qualifying depository institutions without exception. And this is kind of interesting because the brief and the question at hand really are intending to address the question as to whether or not the Federal Reserve has, under its current statutory scheme, the authority to determine what is and is not a depository institution. So I think the Fed has been in an interesting situation here as they've continued to evaluate these applications, because this is one one company. There are many others that have applied in anticipation that others may apply in the future. So the Fed's been taking this cautious approach of trying to provide a framework under which these, uh, I'll call it crypto bank and non-traditional banks can apply for these types of applications. And I think this one is really interesting because it draws in these Congress folks who sit on these committees. And we're really looking forward to seeing how this will continue to evolve, purely because we want to understand what are the rules of the road. So I think that the situation here where Custodia had waited 19 months between their application filing and the filing of the suit is one where it sort of tests the statute where the Fed is supposed to respond within a year. But I think because it is unique circumstances, it's reasonable that they continue to explore 
how to strategically address the situation. I'm personally going to keep an eye on this one just because I'd like to understand how this will potentially affect not just crypto companies, but fintech companies. And candidly, I just don't personally know enough about banking laws. And I think the more I learn about it, the better I'll understand how they may or may not apply in these new crypto markets. Yeah, no, I think that's really interesting. And for me, it feels like this is a bit more about the precedent that it will set as to whether it moves forward or not. And I think kind of maybe if it does move forward and they are successful in in receiving a master account, I guess to some extent it could be viewed as clearing the way for you know other digital assets providers that want to become banks or at least have access to to the Fed payment system. But I think to your point, Jason, I think there's a lot of uncertainty, even if the, the case isn't dismissed and the, it does move forward. I think this kind of just maybe turns us to the next chapter. But the story here, I don't think is necessarily over for Custodia or, or for the Federal Reserve. I, I think you're right. And just to, to reiterate, the Fed has come forward with a framework that it is looking to promote. So I, I don't think that these things are mutually exclusive. I think both yeah. this particular case in hand and that framework will continue to advance in the coming months. Yeah. Yeah. And I think like the timing is really interesting with, I think last week we saw Abra announced that they're planning to launch a bank or banking services for their clients. Right. And, and this is another trend I think we've seen amongst the crypto providers and digital assets providers is just really around going that extra mile now and reaching into TradFi, whether it's offering brokerage services for securities um, or in this case, banking services. So this is definitely something that I think we'll be seeing and hearing a lot more about in the future. All right. I think we can move on. So Parth, do you mind just providing an overview of Wintermute, what we saw and what was the root cause? Sure. So some of you may know this, but Wintermute is a market maker run by crypto natives and TradFi folks. And this was sort of the biggest news last week. So Wintermute got hacked for $160 million due to a brute force attack on their vanity slash custom address. So Wintermute had a vanity address, which basically means that they had an address where you can customize it. So they had an address which had seven zeros in the beginning. So the address was 0x00000 FEG something, right? And so they did this uh, with a tool called the Profanity tool. So it's almost like getting a customized license plate or a vanity plate. But pretty much Wintermute said that uh, they needed a vanity address because it helps in gas optimization. So, so far, uh, they've ended up saving $13,000 in gas fee, but then they also got hacked for 160 million US dollars, right? So, which is kind of, which is insane. Interestingly enough, just to add some more color, One Inch, which is a DEX aggregator, put out a blog post last week discovering the exact same vulnerability and how someone can reverse engineer the seed phrase from the vanity address. Now, Vinomute saw that and they had to blacklist these addresses, right, which were vanity addresses. But I think there was human error and they ended up blacklisting one of the router addresses and not the one which was supposed to be blacklisted. So the hackers saw that and stole funds. But I, I guess I, I have an open question for both of you. What do you what do you think of market makers like Windermute getting wrecked? Is is no one safe? Yeah, I mean well, and this was a this was a relatively sophisticated attack. Correct. I think this is kind of an, an ongoing trend and something that we've discussed in the past, and that is this is like 
extremely advanced kind of cryptographic primitives and technology and is certainly subject to these types of vulnerabilities, even when they're fairly well vetted and audited and all of these things, right? Just because it's so new and then, you know, you make the slightest change and can open kind of the biggest vulnerability. I think the timing around the blog post is really interesting. I think it will be interesting to see when they do the postmortem on this, if this attack had already been engineered, right? Because a week kind of feels like a pretty quick turnaround time to engineer and execute an extremely sophisticated hack that steals $160 million from the vulnerability first being discovered. So the question really was, is I guess for me is, was it already known by, you know, certain bad actors that this existed, right? And I, I think even beyond that, I think it should be probably a harder look taken at all of the services, whether they're sophisticated market makers or other crypto services that use this service to generate addresses and making sure that all of those holes are now closed, right? Because as you pointed out, it seems like they attempted to actually do that, but because of human error, likely it didn't actually end up working. I don't know, Jason, what do you think? I'd echo a lot of what you said, but I, I think the the key theme here is that no one wants to see anybody get hacked and nobody wants to see situations where there's a rapid execution of an attack based on an initial sharing of a type of bug. What I think is interesting is you've got an automated market maker that is seeking to provide liquidity to the ecosystem. And, you know, they're looking to do that in a way where they're balancing costs and controls. And it sounds like they actually had a pretty solid, uh, and I, again, I'm paraphrasing because I don't know enough of the details, but it seemed like they had an action plan and that action plan was put into effect. But then the maker checker type of control dynamic maybe wasn't executed as quickly as one would hope. Mm. Um, you know, I've got an operations background. I certainly know what it's like to make sure that your practice follows your procedure. And I think in this context, what I found interesting in doing some of the research was that there were 90 different assets that were hacked. It's not like it was one particular coin. The, the hackers were able to abscond with 90 different assets, only two of which had market values of a million dollars or more. The other 88 were all below a million dollars. So mm -hmm. that's a lot of different controls that need to be put into place, in my opinion. Again, I don't know enough, haven't dug in, but my thinking is that as an industry, the more that we can identify these vulnerabilities and stall fixes before they become publicly exposed, the better off we'll be as an industry. Yeah, And I, I think that that's really the direction that we should be heading in. I think a lot of people understand that security and safety around customer funds, even proprietary funds. In this case, what I read is Wintermute came out and said they have another 320 million in liquidity to continue making market operations. And their CFI and over-the-counter activities were not exposed. This was specific to the DeFi space. So I think it's just one of those situations where the community will learn from each other, hopefully. And the more we have the opportunity to learn from these complicated, as you expressed it, Ryan, sophisticated maneuvers, the better we'll all be able to protect the industry. Yeah. I think in this scenario, uh, the hacker pretty much just went on Etherscan, saw all the high value profanity addresses and, and Windermute had a, a human error. So instead of blacklisting 0x000, uh, they blacklisted a different address. But what's also interesting is that 
the hacker also immediately added all the liquidity that they stole on the three pool of curve. So now it's mixed with USDC, USDT and DAI. Mm. Um, had it been just USDC, then Circle would have frozen those funds, right? So that's the reason why they put it all um, on, on the three pool. And it's still sitting on the curve pool. So you can go and check out the transactions. You can look at the address. I think the address is now labeled as Wintermute Exploiter. Now I, I want to see how they get it out of the system. So as of now, uh, the third biggest contributor to the to the three pool is the Wintermute Exploiter, which is really interesting. Yeah, so Parth, when, when you say that, I think it's, it's an assumption that one of these centrally managed stable coins could step in and, and execute that type of encumbering of the tokens. But I also saw that CEO of Wintermute was actually saying they'd be willing to treat this as a white hat hack if the exploiter were able to return the funds. And we've actually seen that as a trend when there have been exploits and some folks have actually been able to recover funds as a result. And I believe a while ago, we even saw that the company paid a, a bounty to a hacker who returned the funds. So um, who knows, maybe this type of not really policing because it's the wrong word, but monitoring and exposing of the, the addresses that the participants in the ecosystem do can help sort of improve that security and, and the possibility of there being funds returned. But yeah, I think that time will tell whether that's true. Absolutely. So I think as of now, I think it's a it's a like the hacker has pretty much stolen addresses because the deadline to return the the amount was September 22nd. And so Wintermute said that if you gave back all the money, we'll give you a 10% bounty and you would be labeled as a white hat hacker. But I mean, now it's September 26th. So it's kind of they. I think I think they would um, now involve uh, law enforcement. So is there a path where the where the, the hacker is unable to move the funds again? So right now it's sitting on the three pool, uh, but at the end of it, if they really want to encash this money, they have to go to convert it into USDC or or one of these centralized stable coins. Yeah, and I think my my sort of uh, hypothesis is that that's the time when they'll be blocked. Uh, it could be years from now, it could be months from now. Right. It seems like an interesting move to move the funds into a pool where there isn't really a route beyond that, where you're not going to be kind of beholden to a more centralized stable coin, right? Mm -hmm. I just want to add one sort of fun fact. So so basically, once the hack happened, um, someone deployed the Wintermute Inu token, uh, the Vinu token on Uniswap, mm. and then they spoofed the address. So they they made it look like that the, the Wintermute exploiter deployed the contract. And so people uh, thought that anyone who buys this token will pretty much get some free money out from the hack. And so so a lot of people started aping in. They started sending money to this scammer and uh, he or she received thousands of dollars out of nowhere. <laughs> so people thought that if they bought the Wintermute Inu token, uh, some parts of the stolen money would be distributed. But all they were doing were they were just burning tokens and sending money to this second scammer. So someone uh, was someone was trying to capitalize on you know the fact that yeah that the, all exactly. these funds has been stolen. That's interesting. I mean, I think the moral here, right? You know, it sounds to me that from the exploit being identified to being communicated to kind of being patched and plugged you know, to the extent that it can be like that all went according to plan if there is a plan but to me you know Jason to your point it feels like this is an open source community right and so there there probably should be a path where when these vulnerabilities are identified the people that are impacted by them right 
are are notified first before it's made public, and, and then thus they can be exploited. And I, I mean, exploits are identified in a lot of different ways. Parth, as you mentioned, in this case, it was a blog post. You know, in in some cases, they're identified and then hacked, and then as we discussed, you know, the funds are returned, and it's really just to raise awareness to actually get action on certain things, right? Um, and that's the white hat hacker um, instance. Um, but to me, like, it feels like, again, if we're going to harden these protocols and actually make sure that they're truly battle tested, we need to come up with a, a you know, process, you know, by which we can kind of identify and, and remediate without the loss of funds, um, client funds. The one last thing I would say on this, and I know we want to jump over to talk about some of the L2 bridging, but we often talk about DeFi and crypto being trustless. But the reality is we know that we're trusting the code. So a lot of people will look at these particular uh, situations and try to understand, can I trust the code that was used here? And I think a lot of people not being able to independently verify that they can trust it. There's a reliance upon third parties. I think those third parties, like these market makers and and others, have uh, not just a, a business intent, but a responsibility to try and help educate folks as to uh, the risks and the rewards that are possible as a result of participating in their ecosystem and using their tools. Right, right, yeah. Um, All right, you want to close it out um, by talking a bit about Boba Network? Yeah, sure. So Boba Network is a network, it's an L2 network, and it's pretty much a fork of optimism. So imagine an optimistic roll-up, which is intended to make transactions uh, cheaper and faster. Right. But that's not the the only unique proposition. So Boba Network is deploying layer twos on five different blockchains. And so they will sort of make cross L2 transactions easier. So their hypothesis is that most of the users will interact uh, with a lot of decentralized applications on L2s. And so that's why if I if I have some funds on Ethereum's L2 and I have some funds on Avalanche's L2, I should be able to move my money from one place to another, right? So, so, so far, I think we have spoken a lot about bridges, um, cross-chain transactions, but whenever we talk about these tra- uh, transactions or bridges, we almost always talk about layer ones. So we talk about how one can move assets from Ethereum to Avalanche or to BNB, uh, but Boba is really focusing on cross L2 transactions. Um, and it's, I think, it's one of the really um, interesting innovation um, happening in the L2 scalability space. And so that's why I thought it's worth mentioning. Um, and um, these L2 bridges also uh, inherently inherit the the, the security uh, guarantees of the layer ones. And so that's why they are sort of relatively more secure than your average uh, trusted bridge. Yeah, so that's that's really interesting. And, and are there like mechanical differences in how these work? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so in terms of uh, differences, imagine an L2 on all of these blockchains, and then they have enabled or they will enable cross-chain messaging across these these L2s. So that's the idea. It is definitely um, a new sort of technology, um, hasn't been done before. Uh, but uh, I think after seeing so many bridge hacks, a lot of people are really betting on cross-chain messaging instead of basically locking your funds uh trusting a certain party and then using your wrapped funds on the other side. 
Yeah, and 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 I think you mentioned so this was the first kind of L two to L two bridge. Obviously, there's a few um, services on L one to L one. Any other projects that have announced, you know, kind of a similar similar functionality? No, I think Boba Network is the only uh, cross L two um, network as of now. Um, I know there are more in the works. I know Polygon is working on that, uh, but I, I don't think they have it announced. Yeah, I mean, regardless when we think about usability, right, of L2s and L1s, you know, we've we've discussed in the past, you know, bridges are going to be an extremely critical part of kind of increasing the usability and the user experience, you know, of, of you know, the assets that are on these different networks and the applications for that matter. I mean, I, I, I can't help but drawing in my mind that we've got these uh, analogies to like highways and back roads. And sometimes the highway is congested and the back road is the better option, you know, like, or it could be toll road, non-toll road. Uh, when you think about the correlation to transaction fees, but part of, I, I have to ask you, when I was looking into this and trying to learn a little bit more about it, I, I noticed that Boba um, talks about hybrid compute being a key element of, of what they're doing. Can you just tell us what uh, hybrid compute is and why it would be valuable in this case? Sure. Um, so hybrid compute is this technology which uh, Boba has worked on, uh, but pretty much the idea is that it's almost like an oracle where you can call functions uh, on in the Web2 world, right? So if I want to know what the latest weather is, or if I want to know what the market price of a stock is, I can use this technology called hybrid compute, which interacts with the Web2 um, uh, APIs. So it's a, it's a good way of calling functions uh, which are out there in the in the Web two space. So it, it it's like an Oracle, but but different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. So it's a it's a direct. Imagine a direct API endpoint to like any of your to like a Bloomberg terminal or the weather uh, API app. Very cool. Very cool. Um, and you said five chains. Uh, that's that's obviously the more chains that they connect with the greater the value will be for the users. I don't mean monetary value, I mean utility, uh, because there's more more connection points they can work across. Right, so I think they have crossed L2 transactions across a lot of EVM-compatible chains. So if I remember correctly, they started off with uh, Ethereum in, in 2019, they have Avalanche, which just came out, that was, a, that was sort of the news last week, uh, BNB, uh, and then Moonbeam, and there was one more, another EVM compatible chain, which I which I uh, keep forgetting. Phantom. Oh, Phantom. Yes. Uh, Phantom is the other one, I believe. Yeah. Yep. All right, guys. I think that's all the all the time we have uh, for today. I appreciate the the good discussion as always. And next week we'll we'll have Jack back, so we'll uh, we'll all be together again next week. But um, in the meantime, I hope everyone has a good rest of your week, and we'll talk to you soon. See ya. Thanks, Ryan. Thank you. Excellent. Bye. Thanks, guys. Take care. Digital assets are speculative and highly volatile, can become illiquid at any time, and are only for those investors willing to risk losing some or all of their investment and who have the experience and ability to evaluate the risks and merits of an investment. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. This podcast was produced by Fidelity Center for Applied Technology, also known as FCAT.
FCAT does not offer digital assets nor provide clearing or custody of such assets. It is for informational purposes only and is not intended to provide tax, legal, insurance, or investment advice and should not be construed as an offer to sell, a solicitation of an offer to buy, or a recommendation for any security or other asset by any fidelity entity or any third party. Views expressed are as of the date indicated based on the information available at the time and may change based on market or other conditions. Unless otherwise noted, the opinions provided are those of the authors and not necessarily those of Fidelity Investments or its affiliates. Fidelity does not assume any duty to update any of the information. Fidelity and any other third parties mentioned in the podcast are independent entities and not affiliated. Mentioning them does not suggest a recommendation or endorsement by Fidelity. This information is not intended for distribution to or use by any person or entity in any jurisdiction or country where such distribution or use would be contrary to local law or regulation. Persons accessing this information are required to inform themselves about and observe such restrictions. Third-party trade Marks appearing herein are the property of the respective owners. All others are the property of FMR LLC. Copyright 2022 FMR LLC. All rights reserved. 1040156.